Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with journalist John Biewen on being human and being white. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Okay. And I am rolling on my, on my tape sink here. So. Right. Yeah. Okay. I know that um, one thing we were all excited about about interviewing you is that that it would be technologically <laughs> unchallenging. <laughs> well, I I hope it turns out to be uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I well. mean, one should never say that because I've yeah, exactly. I've known long enough that you you know you you're talking with the greatest ISDN setup in the world, and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, this this will be the time that I I it turns out that I just. My machine fails to record right. anything or something. Yeah, but uh, okay, it's really good to be with you. I'm genuinely honored that you asked well, me to do this. Thank you. I'm I'm excited. I was excited all day, and I thought it's odd to be excited about a conversation that is so hard and <laughs> kind of em- embarrassing. You know, is a word mm. I, I've I've spoken a lot this year, but um, I. I and and we, you know, um, have so appreciated your work um, as a companion to what was happening in the world, and mm. and also to you know how we were thinking about uh, what we could do. And you know, I want to say, kind of up front, I want to, I want to kind of give you a my point of view. <laughs> Sure. On this, um, well, f- well. First of all, just to say, um, it's really important to me that um, my sense of our audience is that all kinds of people are listening. People mm-hmm. are listening who vote Democrat, and people who are listening who vote Republican, and um, people are listening. Well. All of the, you know, what is white and black, but, you know, um, all, all these divisions um, that are so alive yeah. and so defining in our culture right now, I don't believe that they define um, our audience or actually our communities with anything like that linear way we chop people up into categories. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many, just as we're going to discuss that, you know, race is a construct, it's 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 um i think there's so much that's constructed about really but but these things but but like race they have the consequences are yeah. very real right right but but i guess i guess you know what i what i want to what i want to share with you as we start is that you know right now here we are later in 2020 this has been a year of rupture and awakening, and yet we're and and yet so and on so many levels, and you know as we're speaking, we're in a moment with lots going on in the world, lots of noise, yes. 
And it's a moment where, you know, our fellow journalists are, you know, rolling out opinion polls that's, you know, that will be a yes, no, or up, down, or multiple choice question that tell us that, you know, fewer people are interested in Black Lives Matter or supportive of it than were a few months ago. And I just refuse to work with that as (laughs) evidence, right? Or to let that affect how, you know, move pushing um, what we're learning and what I think many people are learning North and south, red and blue, um, op- you know, opening to this larger reckoning and awakening of which Black Lives Matter is a part. And I do believe this is going to continue to shape our world moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I believe that our listeners cross all kinds of lines. And so, like, I want to be thinking about all kind people across all kinds of constructed lines as we're speaking. Um, um, I think... You know, not everybody, but more and more diverse people than we imagine or than the news gives us the impression are are taking up this challenge of learning, mm-hmm. questioning mm-hmm. themselves, you know, becoming a, creating the, a world they want their children to live in mm-hmm. and yeah. up for the challenge of being the generation of our species that is ready to grow up. <laughs> I really, I, you know, I believe it, but more than that, I'm ready to, I'm ready to throw my energy behind it. Mm, mm, um, mm. So, so that's, so that's where we are. That's where, that's yeah. where I'm starting here. This is not I, just like a neutral informational conversation. Yeah, I know that's I, not what you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that a lot. And I, and I think I'm in a pretty similar place. Yeah. Honestly, I, I'm yeah, sure I we'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. And yeah. Okay. So and um, it's I think something a really a, a really uh, really fantastic place to start um, is with kind of where you personally sit um, in terms of all these constructed formative divides. So you know right. you you do straddle a lot of these lines um that that are defining us and that and that are in danger of defining our reckoning um around these matters of of, of what it means to be human and who who we are and um so you live how long have you lived in in, in North Carolina you live in the south yes uh i've been here since 2001 Okay. So coming up on twenty years. The entirety of the twenty first century, almost. Yes. Well, I moved. <laughs> I moved here a couple of months before nine eleven. Yeah. And uh, yeah, been okay. here. Been here ever since. Um, and you grew up in a liberal family in the northern liberal state of Minnesota, where yes, I'm sitting least, now. <laughs> yeah. We have traditionally thought of Minnesota, at least in these decades, as being liberal. It's, yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder if I asked you the question this way, like how would you start to tell the story of what it means to be white in America through the, through the earliest story of your life, the background of your life? Mm. Well, I guess a, a really important thing that comes to mind when you ask it that way is seeing myself absolutely as the default generic person and as a as a quote-unquote white person in southern minnesota in the 60s and 70s when i was a child 
that's very easy to do, right? There's a sense that... Um, <clears throat> that like when you say default, base, do you mean like the baseline person, like the, yeah, the norm? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like people look like me mm-hmm. and, and my family. And then there are other people, the way that, you know, we say it at one point in Seeing White, we say that white, white people are just people and then race is something that other people have. Right. So that occasionally you see a black person or a Native American person, and they are they are racialized. Like that's, oh, there's a there's a person who possesses the characteristic of having race, <laughs> and and I, and I'm just a human, right? So so when I think back on my childhood, I think that's that's how I went through the world, moved through the world. Another thing that comes to mind is is my understanding of that place and of history. Um, it's, it's, it strikes me so powerfully now that I was born um, 99 years after the U.S.-Dakota War, which was a, a bloody, actually in that region of the country, fairly, fairly cataclysmic event that I've done right. a documentary about since. 99 years, that's nothing. Right, and that was that happened at a time of intense um, in migration of of Europeans to that part of the world, and so it was so new. It was so new when I was born, and 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 I could grow up as an eight or ten year old child and look around saying, like, this was this is the way the world is. This is kind of how it's always been in this place. Yeah, and um, and you can and, see yourself as that default person. <laughs> Exactly, and yeah. if you if I heard about a farmer whose family had been there a hundred years, like wow, that's almost forever. Mm-hmm. And now a hundred years, especially having done a whole bunch of history, a bunch of uh, documentary work, going fairly deep into history, uh, I I see how short a time a hundred years is, and that changes your perspective dramatically too. I'm I'm curious, you know, I'll say that. Especially, you know, not just in 2020, but especially moving through 2020, really moving through these last years in our country. I've, yes, we're learning things about history that we didn't learn in school. Um, but I've, I also, I've, I've found this to be a time of kind of remembering embar- what, I've, what I think of as embarrassing stories from my childhood, hmm. of that cluelessness, right? Or... Hmm. Um, I don't know. Somewhere you use this language of the drip, drip of whiteness, mm-hmm. the relentless drip, drip of whiteness. I don't know. Like, are there stories that you think of from school or from inter- inter- racial interactions you had, or ideas you had that you look back and and really cringe and realize that they were formative and you didn't even think about them until you were forced to? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Um... Which to choose? <laughs> uh, there's the really concrete experiences like, um, I mean, the town that I grew up in, Mankato, Minnesota, was, was at least in my experience of it, was probably 99 plus percent white. Um, and so there would be one family of black kids in the school that I went to for years, for example. And then I remember a time when a uh, another child, I can't remember the circumstances, 
but there was a, uh, a boy my age who came to our school. I would have been in about sixth grade or something. And I remember, I remember distinctly participating in that thing that now, you know, I've heard about a thousand times from black people as those, that, as that kind of painful experience of standing around, um, that boy. And I, I actually can't remember his name, but two or three of my friends and I touching his hair hmm. and, and noticing the kind of bouncy quality of his hair and, uh, isn't that kind of cool? And, uh, you know, talk about a cringe, mm -hmm. you know, 50 years later, um, <clears throat> almost 50 years later. Um, there are, let's see, there, there are other, there's, there's a, there's broader, I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, well, there's this sense that also more broadly, Mm -hmm. The sense that racism, too, was a place that happened elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, yes. The, and in fact, I grew up, as I talk about, I've talked about multiple times, you know, in a family where race was talked about. My dad in particular, uh, he, and he'd gotten a kind of strong sense of social justice and concern about, about it from nuns <laughs> that he... Yeah. Who were his teachers in Catholic schools, but also yeah. he, as a, as a child... Growing up in Austin, Minnesota, an equally white place, but he'd gotten fascinated and and really very very interested in in Jackie Robinson when he was so we're talking when mm -hmm. my dad is ten years old, right in the forties, and what is going on with this? Like, why is this such a big thing? And how uh, obviously unjust that just because this man is black that it would be a big deal that he's allowed quote unquote allowed to play in the main, you know? So so that anyway, was your, so that was your you observing it. Well, that's how, how my dad talks about it. Oh, that's he, he talks about it. Okay, yeah. So, so, you know, a whole generation earlier. So he raised his kids mm -hmm. in this white place, but, with a, but it was something that we talked about. And he was an English teacher, and, and he would make sure that we saw the Sidney Poitier movies when they came on, or To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. or A Raisin in the Sun. And he taught those books, and there was this kind of, But at the same time, so we had this consciousness, and absolutely any, you know, racism was off limits in our house. But at the same time, the whole the, the world where those things were happening, where those terrible injustice injustices were happening, was was someplace else. Yeah. And not only were we innocent, but our kind of our whole region was innocent. And and we also didn't. So so my parents didn't seem to have much of a recognition um, of of the history in that place of what had what white people had done to native americans and what yeah yeah our culture had done to native americans um so there was just these huge blind spots uh and my sense of i i was not complicit in in the in the broader uh in the broader white supremacy that that at some level i was raised to recognize yeah but it wasn't really about me yeah um so, you know, I was looking your um Gustavus Adolphus where you went to college. Yeah. Um they wrote an article about you and the headline was Philosophy Major Becomes Radio Producer. Remember Is that what that? the headline was? Yeah, that's what the headline. Was. <laughs> um so I want to ask you this question and it's I I don't even know um you know so the, the, I I wonder cuz if you think about now after all that you've been observing with this like what what the spiritual spiritual consequences of that 
what you just described in you were, however you would use that word spiritual, more philosophically, mm. more, um, more religiously. Mm. Well, you know, I, I know that you sometimes on your show, you ask people about their... Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and maybe... Well, I guess, I, you know, I guess I, the way I'm kind of pointing at it now is I think that the way we've all been, especially around whiteness, the, like there, that has been a spiritual background <laughs> of mm. the childhood and of the life <clears throat> of anybody who's white in this, in this world. And so that's kind of how I'm, I'm focusing it. Um, thinking about it being focused in this conversation we're having. Mm. Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to really, but I, I might get to your question in a kind of roundabout way, but let yeah. me start by saying, so So my parents were uh, Roman Catholic and uh, as a result had five kids in five years. Yeah. <laughs> I owe my existence. I was the fourth, and so I actually owe my existence, I think, to the fact that they were Catholic. Um, and they they became they started to become less Catholic uh, when they decided to stop having a child every year, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then and then became a whole lot less Catholic in the late '60s with the anti-war movement and stuff like that. It, there was a period of where they were, even though they were, you know, parents in their 30s of this large family, they they were affected by what was happening in the culture of the '60s and as part of the, you know, just questioning a lot of things. And they left the church by the time I was about seven years old. Oh, okay. So I was really raised in a non-church-going secular family. And that, I think, was also <clears throat> a part of, you know, my formative years in the sense of feeling a little bit outside the norm <clears throat> and feeling like... um you know, it was sort of our family culture to be questioning yeah. of the mainstream and of the way that everybody else lived. So, you know, in Mankato, Minnesota, it was pretty unusual to just be a kid who didn't go to church. Um, I, I later, uh, so so now I guess you could describe me as a practicing Buddhist. Um, you know, I have a meditation practice and I doing that for a decade or so after many years of sort of being philosophically <laughs> interested uh, a sort of uh, you know observer yeah uh, I finally decided decided to actually start practicing and uh, and I think sometimes I've thought that there's a parallel in some ways between some of the ideas uh, some of the key ideas that Buddhist teachers talk about and a process of a, a kind of anti-racist work, which is, you know, there's there's an element of kind of um, uh, letting go of our, <laughs> you know, sort of loosening your grip on aspects of your identity or of the things that you thought you knew, yeah, um, and of 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 a of a kind of growing comfort with with a process like that, uh, and kind of sitting with. <laughs> With discomfort or with um, with that process of kind of I, I like to say you know strengthening the letting go muscle, which is a kind of yeah. paradoxical way of saying yeah. Um, so so that yeah so so I think maybe having some capacity to to do that and to say well here's you know having spent decades of thinking that I was one of the good ones you know one of the good non racists. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because of the way I was raised and because, look, I'm like a public radio journalist and I've reported on race. And <laughs> right. so clearly I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good, I'm one of the good white people yeah. to, to then be confronted with um, history and facts and analyses that sort of make you go, oh, wait a second. There's, there are several deeper levels here uh, and there's deeper, much deeper work that I still have to do. Um, yeah, and and being, yeah. I guess, with trepidation and with limitations, I'm sure, trying to to have the courage to to do that work. Yeah, and so it feels like you um, you've described yourself as from from kind of feeling not implicated or being not complicit. Is it that you're in recovery, which I think is actually a really useful um, huh. phrase um, for a lot of us, and um, you. So then you really turned, you turned that lens personally, but then you are a journalist and an investigative journalist, and you also kind of turned it with your, at, your, at, at your profession and at the questions you were asking mm-hmm. as a journalist. Um, and I mean, here's some what you said, you know, you, 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 as you started to think about whiteness in yourself and in the place you grew up in, that whiteness is actually the story. Mm. Yes, yes, that wh- white people are the story. Yes, and and so as as a journalist who, um, on and off throughout the thirty plus years I've been doing this, I thought of myself as someone who was interested in race and covered race. But what that almost always meant, pretty much always meant, was that I told stories, I covered issues, I produced you know, pieces that had to do with people of color, pointing my microphone at people of color. So telling a story about, you know, <clears throat> life on the reservation for Native Americans or, or what's going on with um, you know, efforts to deal with poverty in a low-income black community or, you know, historical documentary that sort of looked at the what had happened to black people during the civil rights movement, you know, and 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 coming to realize that there was uh, an elephant in the room in all of that reporting and and it, and and that it was uh, that the elephant in the room was white supremacy and it's not that it's not that those pieces were not acknowledging racism they were often about racism but it was always it, it, they that that sort of reporting fit neatly into a framework of um, the bad apples, right? Right. right. That, that there were there were racists, or there was an institution that had discriminated against people, and we're going to figure, we're going to point that out, and we're going to shine a light on it as a good journalist. Um, yeah. But the but the larger systemic analysis of this is part of a deeply and profoundly uh, white supremacist culture. That was not that was not there. That analysis and that acknowledgement were not there. And it wasn't that I was being uh, dishonest, except to the extent that I think <laughs> all white people we can be suspected of of our you know willful denial. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it was that I didn't have the analysis yet. I didn't see it yet. I can hadn't sort of learned to to see more clearly how, how white supremacy works and how pervasive and how systemic it is. 
so well, that even, in the process of turning to look at whiteness yeah. and saying, as you said, whiteness is the story, white people are the story. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a uh, really consequential shift in perspective. Yeah, the elephant in the room. Yeah, is us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's us. Um, you know, it, it's it's very. Um, familiar to me i mean as you say you grew up in a place that where you had one black you have you'd have one black family in the school um and yet this story of white of whiteness and of 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 this very dramatic and at times very violent distinction of white versus non-white was so deep in the soil of that mm-hmm. that place oh, that yes. you lived, where I live now. Um, I mean, even as you said, I mean, let's that that Mankato, um, as you kind of discovered. Um, I mean, did you grow up in school in Mankato, learning about the U.S. Dakota War, which had a higher death toll than Wounded Knee or Little Bighorn? Yes, exactly. No, I did not. <clears throat> did not hear a thing about it in school. And, and I said that in the documentary that I did ab- about it for This American Life and, and, on our, and repurposed on our podcast. And there were people in Mankato who said, well, I heard about it. I don't know where you were because I heard about it. Okay. A- and I think some people, I think it was probably spotty, but there were also many others who said, yeah, I didn't hear about it either. Um, and, and I think the way I tried to characterize that, I don't know how clear that was in the documentary, but I wasn't trying to claim that it, that there was literally some sort of uh, overt cover-up. No, you yeah, know? yeah. It, it was, it, and it was, there was, there was some acknowledgement of it, but it was more like, I think the more, the almost the more important point is that I don't think it, I don't remember it ever once coming up in any conversation that I was in or that I overheard among adults mm-hmm. my whole time growing up. Um, and, and and I live in the South now, and the Civil War <laughs> shows up in conversation, um, you know, and the history of this place in terms of, you know, its racial, its racial history shows up, is acknowledged and alluded to fairly often wrestled um, with it's, for, it's, for better and for worse right? exactly i mean it's it's, it's an acknowledged part of the story of this place you really can't escape it and that's almost more the what i that 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 violent um upheaval in 1862 in the place where i grew up was just simply it was as if it were uh you know Napoleon at Waterloo or something. It was just some other little right, factoid right. in history, but it wasn't right. it wasn't alive in that place as part of its story in a meaningful um, way. Yeah, I think that's changed then, some, honestly, though, actually since I was a kid. Uh-huh. But um I don't live there anymore, but I think it's right. I think it actually is acknowledged much more now than it was then. For but the record I, mean, I want to acknowledge. Yeah, I mean that. just, you know, some what I learned from your um, and I live in Minnesota now, and I agree with you. I, I think yeah. I've, I'm a, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I've actually been really impressed coming to Minnesota about how the history has been re- remembered in recent years. Um, I would I'd say pretty vigorously, but mm. but I mean, just 
from what you know what I learned um, from you that I you know I think and I I've actually talked to people about this, but it's ever it's kind of these pieces of our history that you know you you're shocked that didn't that they didn't register and that they that because it's, it's mm. almost kind of hard to take in against the backdrop of the heroic story that we grew up learning in school. Um, yeah. And you, you know, you that that Mankato was the site of the largest execution in U.S. history. The U.S. Yes. government hanged 38 Dakota warriors the day after Christmas under orders from President Lincoln in 1862 at the height of the Civil War. So that that memory that's so alive that you're living with in the South now is the same period of time as this. Exactly. Exactly. So that really that really stood out to me when I first of all, learned enough about that story, about what had happened, mm-hmm. to, to really to have it start to <laughs> sink in. Uh, but also at that point had moved to the South. And uh, yeah, and that contrast was really very striking. I think a very important difference um, is that the South lost and was devastated and, and life changed here in a dramatic way as a result of the Civil War. Um, in Minnesota, people like me, people who looked like me and the overwhelmingly dominant white culture of that place were the winners. And and we trace in the documentary, we sort of trace that history of how for a time after the war and the mass execution in Mankato, it was a big deal. And it was something naturally that people talked about. But then after a time, there was sort of a realization, as the historian Mary Wingard told me, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, this is not such great PR uh, when we're trying to get more settlers to come out here to Minnesota. Let's just kind of stop talking about that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, let's kind of talk to the extent that we acknowledge um, Native American, the Native Americans who uh, were here you know, before us Europeans and are still here. Let's just kind of talk about them in sort of romantic ways. Um, you know, that this is kind of a nice exotic aspect of this place and it's, but it, but it's not, but almost in a kind of disnified way. Uh, but we're, let's not, let's stop talking about the, about the bloody war, which was really essentially a, 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 a just a, very strong example of the whole process that went across the, uh, went on all across the country of deceptive and violent um, theft and taking of Native Americans' land um, for the new country here. I guess there's part of me that um, you know one of the things I've had to uh, really be searching about in my own history, my family. Um, <clears throat> you know, my life, as I, I think we're all called to do, is kind of retell the story of our families, our places, um, is, uh, yeah, also that I, there's just, there's so much of the story that I just never, it just wasn't there. Um, and I guess when I hear you say that it was a, that there was an active decision to cover it up. I guess like part of me wants to imagine um, that it was just a forgetting, you know, that it was a more innocent forgetting um, because, to, to yeah, it's just, it's hard to grapple with this. 
Well, I think there is some element of what do you want to call it innocent, but there's a there's a human desire that I think is shared by people everywhere, which mm -hmm. is let's not <laughs> uh, let's minimize let's you know let's let's not talk so much about the really painful parts of the history of our of this place where we live. That's mm -hmm. that's pretty close to universal, right? Especially especially when that history f reflects poorly on really on us on right. us your, those of us who are ancestors. in charge now right i mean it happens in families too if you think it's a yeah. it's a it's a larger canvas for what we do with what shouldn't have happened yes i but but i think i and and i think it's it's there are layers to it right there yeah. there is on the one hand a a, a maybe a conscious decision as to, as I was talking about a, a minute ago, about you know, say ten years after the five or ten years after uh, those events happened, to say, ah, uh, we're trying to get settlers to move out here as a kind of official, right? You know, the state leaders and people like that. Let's let's stop talking about that. Yeah. And then there is there, there's also then a process of the story being rewritten to reflect, uh, and, and so for for many years. As you know, and some of our listeners will know, you know there was a um, there was a version of uh, of of that story that basically uh, talked about it as if um, uh, about the Dakota people just kind of rose up and went crazy one day right. and started attacking right. the white people because they're savages. Right. You know? There was a redrawing <laughs> of who were the victims and who were the perpetrators. Yes, and yeah. and yeah. Uh, the Sioux uprising was the. Yeah was the term that was used for a century. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so then there was a need not only to begin to remember it more fully, but also to, to just tell a more accurate version. I think, um, I think your um, Seeing White series, as much as anything I um, listened to this year, um, just very matter-of-factly kind of uh, brings into relief. Um, I mean, it, it, this is a fact that that race is a, is man made. It's invented. It's a it's a social construct. Um, but I think you you know you you interviewed somebody who said a uh, scientist who said you know genetically a room full of humans of different races is still more alike than a flock of penguins. <laughs> yes. Right. And really just brought this home. This 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 core piece of reality and truth that we have to let register and if we let it register it changes it must then as we walk forward change so much mm. yeah I, I think we just I, um, that is a shift that was a shift for me too that I find even though you know it's never really it's it's very very squishy right the way I think the the messages that we get about what race means um, and it ends up being this kind of cobbled together picture of what does it mean as a, as as I as a person who identifies as a white person or you know it, it just is introduced to someone to a black person or to a Native American person or what's going on in our mind in terms of what that difference is and what it means. Um, it's it's very undefined, I would say, for most of us. Mm -hmm. But be just because of the way the uh, because of the the messages that we get from our culture, I think we tend to 
we tend to, oh, I'll speak for myself, I grew up um, experiencing it as significant, right? That, that there was something. And as more than, uh, you know, a paint job, <laughs> we're, right. we, you know, that we're all 99.9% the same. Uh, and, and the science says that, that it's really literally just a few genes out of the tens of thousands of genes that we all have that determine things like skin color, eye color, whether your hair is curly or not, you know, whatever. Um, the things that we associate with quote unquote race. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I have found it to be uh, significant and noticeable to, to just have that shift to, to just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I see people differently now. And which is to say, I see people as more the same now. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a uh, <clears throat> that uh, you know that the, even within that point point zero point one percent genetic difference among us, there is there is greater difference within what we consider racial groups than there is between what we consider to be different racial groups. It's just not a thing, and obviously there is this kaleidoscopic range of right. of humanity in terms of our skin color and so, so a room on. full of white people would be as they would be there would be greater differences between a bunch of white people than just yes and that's even more true of of african people because um humanity has was in africa for quite mm -hmm. some time before people even left africa and so most of the genetic diversity that exists in the human race exists in africa yeah, yeah. um you know i and, and again, I, I think there's this kind of recover, like it's almost a recovered memory. Maybe that's a good analogy. Um, this recovery of how America has done this, you know, the, the white, non-white, and how who was white was always a shifting, was, was in fact um, always mm. flexible. So in some yes. ways, this awareness was there because it was manipulated. Um, <laughs> Right, and do you know what I was thinking? What I remembered, I keep having all these recovered memories from when I was getting ready to interview you. I won a, an essay competition growing up in Oklahoma hmm. in high school. I think I won fifty dollars, which was a very big deal, and <laughs> and it was called "How My State Got Its Name." Do you know what Oklahoma means? I don't. It, they put two Choctaw words together. It means red people. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. Right, so, so I did grow up in a state which was the former Indian Territory, and you know we probably don't like it's like these layers and layers that we just started on peel with Manicato. We don't really have time to do that, but but it is kind of the original geologic layer, and it was also this creation of a category. Of red, or you know, I mean, you yeah. and I grew up with talking about yellow people, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which would be Asian, and so in some ways we've come far, but we kept using that. We kept using language and our our imaginations and constructing worlds around that. Yeah, yeah, and I think that sometimes it it can be confusing to people when they hear. Uh, when they hear that 
people like we have both just said that race is not a real thing biologically or mm -hmm. genetically mm -hmm. and people what are you what are you talking about i mean just look look around clearly and that's and as i as i was saying you know obviously there is this kaleidoscope of of difference in terms of what you might call ethnicity or whatever where there are dozens and dozens of there's a, this whole spectrum right and mm -hmm. and <clears throat> so there is difference but the idea that 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 there are three or four or five racial groups right uh, and that those distinctions mean something. And particularly that there's a hierarchy <laughs> because that's what, that's what it was invented for. That's why race was invented. Right. And that people would be hierarchy. treated fundamentally differently based on yeah. that particular difference. Yeah. The people who called themselves white created this concept and created and and added a, you know created a hierarchy it was built into the to the idea from the start mm -hmm. both in terms of the slave traders who created who invented blackness and whiteness for the purposes of justifying uh the atlantic slave trade and then as we got into the scientists um, linnaeus and blumenbach and this you know the early people who were kind of codifying and categorizing and naming the world that they did the same thing with and called it science and said there are four or five or six races and the people we call white are the are the the, the superior one you know mm -hmm. that is a story that people made up yeah <laughs> that's what it is it, yeah. it's also a story that our brains can comprehend and latch on to right like i i feel like one of the things that makes me hopeful about potentially this being the century century where we turn a corner mm -hmm. is that we're understanding that this is how our brains naturally work. Um, and I think we're learning to we're learning to perhaps work with that need we have to categorize and and question it and not let it yeah. dominate us internally. I don't know. You're a meditator. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right, right? Like that, that is a technology for understanding what's happening in your mind and shifting yes. it. Yes. Yes. And I think the question is, uh, we don't need everybody, right, to, to see all of this in order to change the world. Hmm. We just need enough of us. And um, and that's right. I think I do think there are probably more people than than ever before um, that are recognizing these things and being willing to kind of do the work and being exposed to uh, journalism, to books, and documentaries, and this and that and enough to to be able to see. Oh, we've actually, you know these not only the way our brains work but these stories that we've been taught these narratives um that we can let go of them yeah and uh and we need to and i think that's part of it too right and i think maybe that's what you were alluding to is there's this uh and that's one reason i think that this moment of deep crisis is both alarming and scary but also somewhat hopeful and hope-inducing is that moments of deep crisis have been the, t the moments when 
societies have often been able to take these, you know, these bigger turns uh, and pivot and do something very differently and to take on and to shed some of their, and actually to adopt some ideas uh, that were considered fringe and radical just a few years before, because now it seems, now we see the necessity, in fact, of adopting those ideas and those ways of being. Yeah, there's this, these become moments where we can jolt out of really deeply entrenched patterns, you know, that you almost need some kind of drama because there's yeah. such drama to the patterns, such persistence. I, I really love you. I love that observation, and I kind of want us to walk forward with that, that we don't need everybody to be in the same place mm-hmm. to move forward. <laughs> um, because, you know, I um, it's come through loud and clear in the conversations I've been having this year um, and this seems to me kind of the frontier we have to step onto. It's still a little underpopulated of um, white white people talking to other white people. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, white people talking to themselves, and then there being this reckoning that is that is individual and collective, and that looks. You know, just as you see, you know, what you did as a journalist, you started turning the lens and you were asking different questions. Um, and I, th- I think that, I mean, how much has th- was that on your mind as you were thinking about creating Seeing White? Did you see that as a dialogue with, I know you saw it as a dialogue with yourself, and I'm feeling like you saw it also as a dialogue with other white people. Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, I think my understanding of that um, developed and deepened and and kind of shifted in nuance early on, before the series even started coming out, when I was having some of the first conversations with Chenjerai Kumanyika, my collaborator on yes. the series, Rutgers professor, who was, you know, we would have conversations as part of every episode. He asked me... Um, John, how do, how do you see the audience? Who do you think is the audience for this series? And we kind of kicked it around, and 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 um, and I think you know, really, ultimately, the core of his question was, who are, who do you see as the white people who are going to listen to this? And and in part, what he was asking is, are we just are we just preaching to the choir, and how do we think about that? Quote unquote, preaching to the choir. Yeah. And of course, a podcast is is one of the most purely self-selective <laughs> media technologies you could think of, right? Because you literally have to go tap on your phone or, or you know or click on that show. It's not something you're just going to get in your car and hear. So the people who are going to listen to a 14-part series on whiteness, white people are going to be um, overwhelmingly they're going to be people who are well they're going to be people who are open enough to do that and they're mostly going to be people who think of themselves as as not racist or not wanting to be racist um and that they're they're maybe going to learn something um but i have come all the more clearly to to think and to feel that um that that is just fine <laughs> right that mm. that that it's not that the choir has a lot to learn too yeah. Um and and as as 
I've heard at least one black person say, when it comes to white people, there is no choir. <laughs> Which is to say that we all have we all have a lot to learn. And if uh, a whole bunch of people can maybe be moved from a kind of complacent, I'm one of the good ones, uh, I'm a, not a racist because I, I don't tell racist jokes and right. I have racist friends and I, you know, I'm not a, in the Klan. You know, moved from that to, oh, well, actually, this is a deeply systemic problem. And, I, and if I just go about my life benefiting from a system, uh, not doing anything to dismantle this system that benefits me, then I am complicit. So I actually have to put my shoulder to the wheel to make change or else, you know, I'm effectively a racist. Um, if, 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 if it can have that kind of impact on, on a bunch of people, then that's, that's useful. I mean, I will say that my concern now is that, and maybe this is still about our very stubborn, powerful brains loving those categories. There's a there's an there's an impulse for. Uh, I mean, I think those categories of good white people and bad white people are still very much alive, which you mm-hmm. do. You know, you you know you you have been reflective about how white northerners northerners view whites white southerners. Um, um, you had somebody on your on this show who talked about who was obviously very intellectual, sophisticated person who who talked about this constant experience of northerners being surprised at how articulate and intelligent he is because he's from the south. And I guess a concern I have now um, is new categories of bad white people being created. Right? I mean, mm. I mean, we we certainly have kind of the white trash versus politically correct, uh, and 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 that's white people who. I mean, on I, on both sides of that line, one side looks down on the other, is offended by the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's all this language that's just become common parlance, like Rust Belt, hillbillies, redneck, that are actually code for other white people. Um, even, yeah. even a phrase like nice white parents suggests that there's a way to get to transcend the problem. I don't know. I'm just curious if if that's something that you're seeing as well. Uh, yeah, the divisions are very, very deep. A lot of those terms that you alluded to are 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 really about class, of course, right? Well, they um, are, but there's a racial, there's a whiteness element to them. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. But I think I think if you're talking about white people, you know some white people using those kinds of terms about other white people often it's a it's about you know there's there are connotations of class and of education and you know and all those divisions are really deep and we see that the increasingly that the way people vote um correlates to whether we've been to college or not in a pretty dramatic way who yes i i mean i think we've we've got a lot of work to do um to 
you know, to, to reach across those kinds of lines as well. I think it's very, very hard. We're talking here in October, 2020, <laughs> mm. right? And it's, it's um, I, I think there's a real sense uh, among a lot of people, well, let's, let's see if we can maybe have those conversations starting in 2021. <laughs> uh, if there's yeah, but, a, if maybe there's a healing process, but yes, but I think that when you know after the killing of George Floyd, which happened in this liberal northern state, land of Humphrey Wellstone, Mondale, <clears throat> and now George Floyd, um, when journalists were looking in this direction, there were just as many people living in the south of this country speaking openly about how they were looking differently at their own history and their own attitudes. You know, I'm not convinced that the awakening that we saw was just limited to liberals or yeah. at, at all limited to liberals. I just don't mm -hmm. know how curious we've been about the depths of that. It's a great point. And, um, I think you're right, and I think probably in in the media that I consume and the social media that I consume, um, there's a real uh, there are there are real barriers there, and that you know somebody somebody like me, I'm mostly exposed to people of a certain education level and certain kinds of politics. But I, but I think you're right. I do think that the that probably there were people across most, if not all, of the of those kinds of spectrums, political and socioeconomic and educational spectrums. Yeah, who, liberal who had a moment, southern, and, less <laughs> educated. You know, I don't think this was about socioeconomic limited to people of a certain socioeconomic or education level. Any of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And one of the things that we, you alluded to this, but we, we have an episode in Seeing White that's devoted very directly to this question of um, North and South and to mm -hmm. what extent is race, there's this uh, widespread image outside the former <laughs> Confederate States that racism is a particular distinctive problem in the South. And... Uh, and I would just point people, for, for the shorthand, I would just point people to the data on those systemic institutional measures of racism, housing segregation, mm -hmm. employment discrimination studies, uh, the, the deeply racialized inequities in our school system and in our criminal punishment system. Those things are very much the same all across this country. Um, so from that standpoint, and I, and I think you acknowledge this, um, the fact that George Floyd, the George Floyd murder happened in Minneapolis is really, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing surprising about that. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, the majority of the most uh, racially segregated cities in the country are in the North. Chicago, New York, St. Louis, Boston, Cleveland, you know, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, and so on. I think um, a really pointed way 
which I think would get me could get me into trouble. Is but get really, into trouble, truly, true. Okay, truly, this is a question I've asked myself this year, and I feel like I have to. Um, I, I have to take it on this seriously, which is, you know, there's there are the things people say, the attitudes they publicly hold, and there's a the way we live, right? And it's not just you know. So it's been possible. To, to not be actively consciously racist, but to be absolutely living in a way that perpetuates uh, in, injustice and dehumanization. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I have wondered, you know, are, are people who are just, who are, you know, openly s- say disparaging things about, you know, about people of other races... Are they are they necessarily more racist or are they just more honest? If you really stack up, you know, all of us, how we've been living, including people who um, feel very consciously non-racist but haven't actually been anti-racist in this new mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. language we're using, which to me, we're on much more of a level playing field as white people than we than we than we have imagined, and certainly than the liberal end of that has imagined. I don't know. Does that feel too extreme to you? No, it doesn't. No, I think I think you're right. I think there's at least it's hard to know ultimately, right? Like, how yeah. do we measure? How do we measure how racist a person is and put a you know put a quantify that somehow? Uh, so I think I think you're there's you're probably right to a very significant extent. And I think maybe an even more, but closely related important point is to say that that um, those kinds of things are not the imp- most important issue anyway, right? That, that the individual attitudes of someone or whether they tell racist jokes is mm-hmm. not, that's not, the, that's not the issue. That's not the problem fundamentally and it's not the solution to sort of get people to be less racist individually in their hearts and minds mm-hmm. um, and that's one of the big takeaways of of our work on the podcast is that is that uh, from people certainly like Ibram X Kendi um, is is that the the change the systemic change and change in policies and practices and actions mm-hmm. and systems is where the energy needs to be and um, and uh, so so even those of us who uh, say we're a, a white person who wants to be an anti-racist and wants to take anti-racist action, uh, sure, fine, you know, read some books or whatever that make you that help you to get over your um, ra- the racist patterns of your thinking. But more importantly, how where can I plug myself in? whether it's in my community or to uh, international or, or national work that mm-hmm. organizations or people, or just people, in the, your people children's who are, education, all that. Yeah. Or to have, you know, it's not so much whether I'm inviting my neighbors of color over for dinner, which it's a lovely thing to do. And stuff, but it's how can I um, contribute to people, who, uh, people who are doing the work of changing our institutions and our systems and making them more just, mm-hmm. uh, and how can I, how can I contribute to that work? Um, 
you know something um or do you know Ruby Sales she was a she's a civil rights elder yes theologian. yeah wonderful one of our one of the elders who's with us and you know she said to me in 2016 there's a spiritual quite crisis in white America that that and, and, and I don't yeah that 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 it was a crisis in white America and she she said, there's nothing wrong with being European-American. That's not the problem. It's how you actualize that history and how you actualize that reality. And she said, it's almost like white people don't believe that other white people are worthy of being redeemed. She was looking at our electoral, because this has, this has real, real-world political consequences, um, Especially in our current political crisis, I also think of James Baldwin writing that white people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. Hmm. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow, this was in The Fire Next Time, and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. Hmm. Wow. I wonder how those... I, I feel I have felt also this thinking about this and hearing these messages that that you know there's so much at stake. It 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 actually is a truth of life, right? If you can't love yourself, you can't love anyone mm-hmm. else. And if white people can't figure out how to care about each other's well-being, that that's part of this reckoning as well. Yes, and um, you know I I don't know exactly. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what Ruby Sales or, or James Baldwin had in mind when they said those things, mm-hmm. but you know what comes to mind for me, at least in our moment, is, um, yeah, if you think about the intense political, divi- political call yeah. it po- tribal political division among white people, right? Yeah, dangerous. And, and I think that um, when black intellectuals, for example, will talk about anti-black racism as being at the core of Trumpism. Um, it's not, it's not that I think that's wrong, but I think that, and this is maybe this comes, uh, relates to what you were saying. I think the, the impulse by one group of white people to stick the finger in the eye of another group of white people is just about as powerful Right, and 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 that's and and that feels to people, for example, who are who have gotten on the Trump train. Um, that feels like a reciprocal, like they didn't start it either in their minds. You know, they felt looked down upon by um, the people who see themselves as sort of progressive. You know, PC yeah. educated woke white people. So that yes, that division is is very very intense and sometimes when i see i'm on twitter too much um yeah i'm sorry and and um when i see for example a person of color saying you know you white people need to be talking to each other yeah um and i and i and there's a feeling of uh, i wish that it were that easy (laughs) because those divisions seem very 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 deep 
Well, it's a vicious cycle, right? It's, it's not yeah. just that. It's not just about white people talking to each other. It's about the fact that this division among white people then underpins the the ongoing pattern of you know what you know what we, we anti-racism. I mean, it's it's a simplistic term for a complicated d- dynamic, mm. but it it makes it worse. It makes that worse. Mm. And having said what I just said, I also, I feel like I want to come back though and say that I think there may be an L, a, 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 a way in which racism, the the black white and black or I'm sorry, white versus BIPOC versus right, other people who are not white, that that division does, there is a way in which I think that underpins and is maybe a primary to the division between white people. And there are layers to that, right? It's it's class and whatever and all these education, all these divisions among white people. But but I think a lot of the resentment is about... um, uh, the division between white people is how they see the relationship to non-white people. Well, and yeah, an almost well, violent kind of disagreement about that. The dynamics of whiteness have come back to bite white people now. Certain classes of white people. Could you say more about that? What What do you mean? By oh, I don't know. I don't know if we should keep going on this. I... <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Yeah. Okay. So let's to come back, like to 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 talk about your your work on democracy, right? Your series on democracy. Yes. You know, interwoven and and really fundamentally energizing our our racial uh, dynamics. Um. As you really dramatically kind of reveal, is this tension between the principles of democracy and the impulse to maximize capitalist growth and profit? Mm. That's that slavery was economically advantageous, not just to the South but to the North. Um, yes. So I don't know. I guess kind kind of what I'm. I guess where this fits in. But I want to just talk some more about what you've learned through that democracy work and the, the light that sheds for you on what's going on now. I think, um, you know, there are new classes of people who have become disposable in the 21st century economy. Um, certain certain kinds of white people have become disposable in the in the 21st century democracy and economy. The tent that tension. Um, so I guess that that would be a that would be one way I would I would yeah I would tease out what I what I just said even though it's kind of me thinking out loud. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I think one of the big takeaways from our current uh, for our from our 2020 series um, season four, which is called we called it the land that never has been yet, which yeah. is a drawn from a Langston Hughes poem looking at the history of democracy in the U.S. Um, one of the big takeaways, as you said, was that as we look at this tension between between a certain kind of capitalism on the one hand and democracy on the other, and and we kind of challenge this idea that the greatness of America is those two things, right? That they go hand in hand, you know, like peanut butter and jelly, as as Chandra right. says at one time, and that they're kind of inseparable. 
that that they're 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 sort of these great forms of freedom. One is one is the kinds of freedoms that come with the Bill of Rights and with a democracy, and the other great freedom we have is is economic freedom and capitalism, and that they combined they they are what make us great. Well, what we find is that with help from a from an amazing lineup of scholars is that going back to the very beginnings of the United States, it was recognized that actually those two things are kind of in conflict and that, that if the, more, uh, the more capitalist growth that you're going, that you want, particularly for, for the few who own most of the stuff, um, you, you need to kind of tamp down democracy in order to protect the interests of the, of the ownership class. Uh, and and the wealth accumulation, and in theory, maybe that wealth wealth accumulation helps a lot of people. Um, but in any case, if you want that, then then you can't have too much democracy. And when you look at American history through that lens, right up to this very day, as we're talking this week, Mike Lee, the Utah senator, put out a tweet that's been getting a whole lot of attention that said, "Democracy is not the object." Yeah. Something to the I'm, I won't be able to quote it accurately, but you know, liberty and prosperity are, um, and, and and rank democracy, he said, can thwart that. So, in other words, we don't want too much democracy because it can get in the way of what liberty and prosperity. So then we could unpack what he means by that. Yeah. But we have a whole history where those things actually are in are intention. Um, he, and he's telling are. the truth about how we've been living. Right. <laughs> yes, he is. So, I mean, yes, you know, is. that's that's what I read, and we're uncomfortable with that statement. But that's but that's actually how we've all been living, right? It's not just how Republicans have been living for a long, mm. long time. Yes, yes, that's true. That's part of the story you're telling. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Sorry to um, <laughs> ally you in that way, but that's that's how that that's how I heard that. Yeah, well, it, yes, he's characterizing uh, what has been the mainstream. Uh, uh, the pe- people who really actually hold power and run things in this country right, who are not just Republicans, <laughs> uh, that's, that, has, that is how our society has been structured, mm-hmm. with, pri- with the emphasis and the priority going to the building of wealth. And that also applies to our foreign policy, we have an episode called American Empire where we look at to what extent has the United States advanced or even respected democracy in the world. And there too, we just there's an inescapable pattern um, that that are, you know, making the world safe for for American capitalism has been the priority as opposed to advancing democracies around the world. And I mean, it's a, it, it, it then is is an, is another way to describe how you know what Pete, you and I grew up learning in school that this is the land of freedom and justice for all, right? All men are created equal, but that was blatantly not even you know it it, it was it was written down, but it 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 wasn't it was qualified. It's been qualified from the very beginning and for a very long time, just blatantly, violently, not applied yes. to African Americans. 
yes, huh. or to indigenous, right? people. or to, or to, to yeah, or to indigenous. People. I mean, and but um, but it this tension that you're talking about, like it 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 absolutely underlies our, it underlies whiteness, it underlies, it underlies our the race the the racial contradiction between who we have said we were and wanted to be and who we actually have been. Yes, and the thing that, you know, that sort of unites all of these conversations is the impulse to exploit, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And for people who have a certain kind of power and control and wealth to um, to exploit other people, to maintain and advance their wealth, to exploit nature, um, and look where that has got us. <laughs> so, and and racism has been a, an extremely important tool in that toolkit for dividing people, in part to um, separate to be an important dividing line between those who would get most of the spoils and those who would not, those mm-hmm. who would be exploited and those who would be the exploiters, but also as a political tool to separate regular people who are not in on the, <laughs> you know, who are mm-hmm. not among the class that's benefiting the most from these systems, just to, to separate them so they don't actually work together to overturn things. Um, and this is a this is not an original <laughs> analysis. It's it's fairly familiar, but I think I think what we've tried to do on the podcast is to really just go into the kind of the fabric of the history of this place and tell stories that that help to kind of bring it to life and help it help it help us all to have it kind of sink in in a new way that this this is this is in fact a more accurate story of what has happened here and how we've gotten to this moment. Um, yeah, and we, let me see, I don't even know what, I'm not watching time. Okay, so, um, have you watched season four of Fargo? No, I have not. This is the new one with Chris Rock. Yeah, they're doing something really interesting, which feels to me, like, like I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen enough of it to know whether I think it's a great season of television. But there's an amazing thing going on that they're doing, which feels to me like one of the many signs that um, that this awakening is happening. And there, you know, you you see different signals in different places. I mean. Um, and you know, TV is important in our culture now, right? So the Watchmen mm-hmm. series, which mm-hmm. which actually brought the 1921 race riots in Tulsa, my which I never grew up learning in school about, mm-hmm. growing up in mm-hmm. Oklahoma. Um, in Fargo, they're they they're telling the story of um, successive. They're telling it through gang through the the, the gangs right. in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, but it's also a story. It's also a story of race, and, and again, you know, it's this story we haven't told ourselves because it starts with Jews, it first, and Jews, and then Italians, and then the Irish, and then and then African American. And there's one point in which this the young female African American narrator 
points out to the watcher, to the viewer, <clears throat> that none of these groups are white, right, in ah. this culture. Yeah. Um, I, um, and you, so there's some place, you're this, the, um, the episode that you did on, um, and I want to be clear, like, I don't really want to talk to you about the series, like, we'll point to it, people, but I really want to talk to you about you, like, how, you know, okay. how this all comes filtered through you, what you're learning, the questions are raising you. Um, I think it was the Second Revolution episode. So, I mean, I feel like mm. another, th- another thread in, in your work and your journalism has been um, not just th- so that these hidden, these hidden histories, some are, there's this, you, you interviewed this historian, was it Tim Tyson? Yes. Yeah. Not in that episode. Oh, is that in a different episode? He's in the, he's in the, uh, the North and South. One, North and South one, right. And seeing White. Um, but he's, Yeah. Um, just so I think that there's this self-congratulatory history, which is how we yes. learned history, all of us Americans, I think, wherever mm-hmm. we lived, um, that keeps us from seeing ourselves and doing better. Yeah. But I also feel like there's, there's a thread through your work of, like there's hidden history. There's history we haven't held up or taken as seriously. That is also about how we can do better. Um, and that's right. maybe where you right. where you tell the story. You know, this the kind of hidden <coughs> story of how radical the Reconstruction was, even if for a very short time. Yes. For example, I mean, has that struck you too? The stories that we could tell that would give us something to work with to be more like who we want to be as opposed to who we've been. <laughs> yes. And I think Chenjerai and I say that a couple times explicitly in the, in the dem- democracy series that, that w- we're afraid that a lot of listeners might be hearing it as, as one big downer because, and, and I say at one point, um, and I think it was when we're talking about reconstruction, I say that, wow, as someone who is still really learning U.S. history, that the more you learn, the you know the worse the worse it looks. Um, but I think that really is from from a pers- particularly from a, a white perspective, honestly, because because things things look bad and things look bleak because because com- compared to the story we've been told, which is this sort of glossed over, glorified story of people who look like us who created this amazing country here. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the more you look, uh, <clears throat> you know, everybody from George Washington and Thomas Jefferson to, you know, um, people much more recently, they, they don't come out looking as, as great as we learned in middle school. Right. They were. Right. So that that's feels bleak and hard to hear, but, but there's so much, uh, there are so many hopeful stories and encouraging stories. And the truth is that, Things have changed very considerably, and this country has become more democratic and more just, comparatively, <laughs> right? Certainly than it than it was two hundred and forty some years ago. So, um, so those victories have been incredibly hard won, and and have taken tremendous effort and sacrifice. Everything from the Civil War. To, to to mostly end slavery to 
what happened with the Great Depression that sort of pushed pushed us forward and and created impetus for um, great progress by the labor movement um, and 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 a movement at least for a time toward greater economic equality after after World War II. You know, there are these pivot points where we have moved forward with great effort and sacrifice by millions and millions of people of all colors and shades and, and backgrounds. And all political parties. And too. all political... Abraham Lincoln was the first Republican president. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, that yeah, and the, the parties have sort of switched yeah. places. Yeah. But but yes, yes. People have, and people have come together and we've made mm-hmm. this a better place. We can do that again. But tell me, okay, let's focus on re- the Reconstruction, right? What What did you learn that you really hadn't known before? How would you tell that story now to your kids? Yeah, I think what I what I didn't know was how how dramatic and how radical the change was for a good solid decade after the end of world after the end of the Civil War mm-hmm. that you had um, that you had and and the role that the federal government played in essentially occupying the South and enforcing uh, new state constitutions that made sure that black men would be allowed to vote and hold office, that um, everybody would be able to go to a public school because there were not, not only were black children not educated, obviously uh, under slavery, but most poor white people in the South didn't didn't have public schools to go to either, um, creating that system, right. et cetera, et cetera. Free and that, so that you had- for everyone for the first time. Yes. Then yeah. you had places like South Carolina, where the majority of the students at the University of South Carolina were black, the majority in the state legislature yeah, were black men. So 2,000 black men elected to office during the Reconstruction at the yes. local, state, and federal levels. And in South Carolina in the 1860s, it was a majority black. Yes, state legislature. State legislature, yeah. Yes. And that this wasn't just like a week or, or a year. It was, it was a, about a decade or so. And then um, the you know, white supremacist um, movements, the Klan and others in the South, uh, were, were violently resisting and... and uh, fighting this and at a certain point um really the the national um power power structure sort of got tired of of fighting the fight and decided well i guess we'll we'll kind of go back to to business and we'll let the southern oligarchs retake control and um basically black people will be relegated again to you know, profoundly second-class status, and we're gonna we're gonna let that happen. Um, so yes, but but that the extent to which it, it just how dramatic and radical, as I said before, how radical that change was for a time, and how it could have it could have been. We could have created a multiracial democracy. Um, you know, a hundred years earlier than than we eventually mm-hmm. kind of did. <laughs> You're either in that conversation. You're you're always referring to the radical Republicans in control of Congress who were pushing this through, and um, Thaddeus Stevens. 
So yeah. like, t- like, tell us who Thaddeus Stevens was. So he was a congressman, member of the House of Representatives, and he was the leading, the leading radical Republican in Congress. Um, Charles Sumner was kind of his counterpart in the Senate, and they were the most uncompromising um, members of the radical Republicans who wanted genuine multiracial democracy and wanted equality for black people in this country, political equality, economic equality. They even, they, yeah, <laughs> talk about that is one element. So a lot of this is about political equality, right? People haven't being able to vote and hold office. Well, Thaddeus Stevens also had a proposal that would have taken all of the land away from the slave-owning plantation owners in the South, or the, the white Southern oligarchy, taken all of their land and distributed it to uh, the freedmen, the recently enslaved black people in 40-acre allotments, which would have completely transformed the economics of the South, never mind the, uh, you know, in addition to the politics of the South. That didn't happen. It didn't get very far in Congress. But that's a that's an element of... That's, yeah, that, that's what that, the that's political discourse... Of, that was an element of political discourse at that point. Yes, but it, but it also, for all mm-hmm. the talk that I've been doing about how radical the transformation was briefly... It didn't go that far. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, could have gone. Yeah. It could have gone f- further because uh, there was. It, and as Eric Foner, the historian, put it, there was. It, it was actually a political revolution, and one that was short lived and was kind of shut down. But it was, in in many ways. But it was not a. Uh, it was not an economic revolution. But there was a discussion of it being more of an economic revolution in the form of Thaddeus Stevens's proposal. You know, um, somewhere, this was you. You said this in script, and I don't know. I don't know somewhere in in in, in one of the episodes of um, Seeing White, and I, I actually think this was about. I think I think it was about um, policies towards the Indian tribes. I mean, mm-hmm. you were talking about Jefferson. Yes, and you said. Um, and that's just a story we don't even we haven't even started to tell. I was recently looking at Jefferson and the, you know how he kind of laid the groundwork for what later happened in the Trail of Tears. Um, yeah. But you said, and we've learned that Jefferson was a complicated character who contradicted himself. Um, but you said Jefferson, his argument with himself raged, but his self interest won out. And I just, I wrote, wow, because that just kind of says it all. And, you know, I feel like Jefferson becomes, in hindsight, as we learn, he's so quintessentially American, right? He was elite Mm -hmm. and about the common man at all at the same time. He kind of transcends our divisions or he resides on every side of them, at least in our imaginations. And that sentence, his argument with himself raged, but his self-interest won out, is is another way to kind of like, it's a headline of our our history up to now. Yes, and I, and I and I feel really implicated in a statement like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what it makes me think of, and it, of course, what I was talking about there was was uh, his view towards slavery and the fact that he could say very harsh things about the evils of slavery. Yeah, um, but he still owned one hundred and thirty 
human beings when he died 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, after he wrote the words, all men are created equal. So, um, but yes, I think, um, I think that, and this is the, the danger and the caution and the, um, for, for all of us as white people, if we, if we're trying to do this work and we're trying to, trying to be anti-racist or trying to move the country toward an anti-racist future is that we always have the privilege, the option of, of, you know, bailing mm-hmm. and of, living um, in ways that are contradictory to our beliefs. Yes. Values, our stated um, values. Yeah. And, or to just not be part of the conversation or to not be mm-hmm. part of the work. Um, and that can be everything from, just how much time do we spend? And I always feel like I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, you know, if I just watch a movie on a Saturday night, uh, which I do, <laughs> uh, you know, and and not that that's not that we shouldn't do that, but but there's an element of uh, you know that there's always this choice, right, to sort of engage or not engage in movements or in work that will that will change things in this country. Um, and we can we can opt in and opt out very comfortably. Uh, mm-hmm. And there there are few people around us, especially if like most pe- people, we're mostly surrounded by other white people who are going to call us out for that. Um, and I think I think when I think back on somebody like Thomas Jefferson, you know, I think ultimately with people like that, um, I think he knew. I think he absolutely knew. That slavery was 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 evil. That it was it was deeply deeply wrong and immoral. But the the people around him who mattered the most, there was literally just not that much public pressure that was going to uh, it was going to require him <laughs> to do what he knew was right. And and I it's it's very human i'm you know that when i reflect on that i i find it hard to um to get too high on my on my high horse yeah uh in thinking back on somebody on somebody like that yeah yeah well yeah he becomes a cautionary tale for all of us as kind of it's an image of of how we have been living um uh you know my i mean we're speaking at such a an extraordinary moment in the life of the world um uh, just uh, kind of worst case scenarios all around on every front <laughs> um um rupture just so much rupture and um it, but in the middle of this year 2020 in in this city of Minneapolis, George Floyd was killed, and that wasn't a new thing. Sadly, like what happened has happened before, but but somehow in the midst of the pandemic, um, it was seen and felt mm-hmm. in a new mm-hmm. way by by many many white people. And um, I get and I do think something shifted, and I think many many of us felt something shift. Um, my fear has been with all that continues to happen that you know it was clear it's clear that the work ahead is long right like this history you're 
you've been investigating is long, and so it's going to be a long time making a new making a new reality. And my fear is just that that we lose that energy and that momentum for that long work ahead. Yeah, um, I'm curious yeah. about how you are seeing that, feeling that. Mm. What's your reaction to that? Yeah. Well, I have the same fear. Um, I, I also, I, I guess I, what I, I have said to people that I'm, I'm cautiously hopeful <laughs> and, and I wouldn't even necessarily say cautiously optimistic because that feels more like a, there's a prediction entailed, right? Like yeah. just you think things are going to get better. It's, it's not, I'm not cautiously optimistic, but I'm cautiously hopeful. And I just think it remains to be seen whether there's enough of us. And I go back to that that point that it we don't need all of us. And so the fact that there's fluctuation in the polls when they asked that survey question, are you sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter right. movement, right? And it, it surged after George Floyd's death and then it kind of, the numbers slipped. And, and you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't put too much stock in that because it doesn't it's not going to take a majority of white people to to push through some real some real deep change um adam serwer the brilliant writer for the atlantic wrote a piece recently that that was he is nobody's pollyanna he's a black writer who's um very sharp and uh i mean is in his analysis and so on often and very critical and he wrote a, 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 a really deeply optimistic piece, I thought, in that he said, we may be living in a moment in U.S., first time in U.S. history where a majority of Americans are anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And not a majority of white Americans, right? Uh, you, you've got you've to gotta have base, you know, but, but between people of color and sort of just enough white people, maybe we have a slim majority of of people in this country who, what do you mean by anti-racist, right? But that have some basic understanding that racism is a real and deep problem and that we really need change. Um, he too wasn't necessarily predicting that, well, therefore we're, things are gonna really get better. But, th but there's an element of possibility that I think we haven't seen um, in our lifetimes. And, and I do think this kind of confluence of crises has brought us to a moment where, um, you know, I feel like it, 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 we, we talk about in our, in our democracy series, we talk about these moments of deep crisis like the Civil War and the Great Depression as moments that then led to, in the aftermath, some of the most profound positive changes in this country. And um, when people ask me that question, how optimistic are you that we're really going to sort of turn some sort of corner? I say, I, d I don't know, because I feel like if we're in the middle of that yeah. storm right now, right? We're in the middle of the Civil War. We're in the middle of the Great Depression. Ask me in five years, you know, or two or, two or three years. Or, yeah, and I, from, the, from a journalistic standpoint, I mean, to me, telling coming at all this from the view of history and having a long view of time and how change happens and how things unfold is very helpful. Um, because this is also a really reactionary moment. Mm. 
It's a classic reactionary moment, which can mean that the real story is what's being reacted against. Hmm. I mean, I think we have to yeah. we have to continue to make that real. But if you take a longer view about what is the real story that we get to be part of, I love I love that. You know, I wonder. You know, the the idea that it doesn't have to be everybody. Um, I have this. It's like kind of my theory of change as as a human yeah. being, but yeah. also in my work, um, revolves a lot around um, an image of um, John Paul Lederach, who's a He's a peace builder, and he's just one of the wisest people in our world about how really transformative change happens in countries out of extreme violence. And he talks about that we need critical yeast as much as we need critical mass. Mm. And that what we, what we tend to focus on and tell, tell history by when we're just doing the big, the big survey is yeah. you know the moments of critical mass, the numbers, but that but where societies really transform, there's this critical yeast before, during, and beyond that that is actually building the new realities, seeing that and making it real, and it starts with small groups of people in an unlike in an un, in unlikely combinations, and a new quality of relationship. Mm. So, like, when you say it doesn't have to be all of us, I think, like, can we just all, can, can, can we be part of the critical yeast? Yeah. Where's that? That's yes. where my mind goes. <laughs> There's a moment in uh, when Chenjirai and I are talking in Seeing White, and I think it's when we're talking about police violence, police um, killings of black people, and I'm expressing a kind of, I'm trying very hard to show that I kind of get it or also saying, acknowledging that as a white person, I probably can't fully get it, but I'm, you know, I'm say, trying to say this heartfelt thing to Chenderai about trying to imagine being in his shoes as a black man and knowing that, you know, that he could be the next one and so on. And, and he, and he politely, but kind of firmly says, well, you know, it's very effectively, he says, yeah, it's very nice for you to kind of express, you know, to, to sort of indicate that you're trying to feel this stuff. But the question, the question is, when are people like you and enough people like you going to get off your asses and do something about this? Mm -hmm. He says, I don't think it would take that many white people to change, to change these things. And and that's very interesting. He said that in 2017. And here we are in 2020 with a protest movement that involves a whole bunch of white people mm -hmm. um, in cities like Minneapolis and Portland and, and many other places. And you have suddenly, again, it, it, it's not clear, you know, how much change is really going to happen. We're still, we still need to see. But we suddenly have serious conversations about yes right defunding police or very dramatically changing the way we handle public safety in this country that were seen as just wild fringe kind of talk a year ago well i think we there's also searching um it, 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 all kinds of people are and all kinds of white people are in are, are are also having a different kind of conversation in themselves and with with their world right even just bigger than the um the protests yes yes and and i i have been pleased that the extent to which even you know many times in the in the mainstream media which can be 
sort of disappointingly superficial about these things, but that there's been a, a often a recognition that that these protests and that this moment of what you know what many of us are calling a reckoning is not just about policing and not just about police violence that it's about systemic racism much more mm -hmm. broadly and that, that that we really need to look at the history and you've seen these moments of the best seller lists being dominated by books about racism and white supremacy including books about the history of race and how we got here and so yeah, I think there's, you know, it's it's not um it's not wrong I think to say that this is that this is a his serious and historic reckoning even as we acknowledge that we don't yet know whether it's really going to have lasting power um uh lasting power and really lead to deep change. You know, I wrote down um well, I think we have to throw our lives at that possibility <laughs> right <laughs> yes um i i don't know where you i wrote this down it's something you said or wrote i'm just going to read it to you you were you were riffing on the washington post tagline democracy dies in darkness you know what i'm talking about was i yeah remind me the idea that democracy dies in darkness and therefore thrives in light for me calls to mind the opening lines from Audre Lorde's 1985 essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. Is that you? No, that's oh. not <laughs> Somewhere on your... <laughs> okay, well, it's really good. Quality, it is good. The quality of light by which we scrutinize oh, our lives. Oh, I know, what, I know where what that, is that came from. That Has... came from, uh, uh, it's Lewis Wallace um, in, in our, uh, yeah, our most recent season. Okay. Lewis Wallace, yeah, I wrote that. The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives. The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives, yes. that will define not just the stories we tell, but what those stories mean and what they make possible. I think maybe that was something you added. I guess yeah. I want to say, I feel like what that, like you've been, that you've been modeling something. Um, you are a journalist. You are an, an, a documentary investigative journalist. But I think that kind of turning the lens, saying, am I looking in the right place? Am I asking the right questions? And then deciding to delve into what you can discover mm. um, is, is actually modeling something that each of us can do with the stories of our families and our communities, right? Our hometowns. Mm. And then... And then, you know, and then what do we do with that new understanding of who we've been? And how do we, how do we turn that towards who, who we can be? Mm. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, there's this, um, we need a certain kind of curiosity. Um, the quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives, uh, as Audre Lorde says, um, the quality of light that we apply, that we shine, um, and and I think uh, you know I've said elsewhere that we need to be as particularly as as quote unquote white, and and I'm a and I'm a cisgender white male, right? Um, uh, we need we that we need to be willing to approach these questions with humility and vulnerability that we traditionally <laughs> don't bring to the table and have not been 
it has not been demanded that we bring it to the table, mm -hmm. at least by one another. Mm -hmm. um, and that we need that we need to do that if if we're gonna if things are gonna change. I, uh, you know, as, as I said in one place, that all that our systems of hierarchy and injustice, racism, classism, etc., all that they need to just sort of keep rolling along <laughs> is for all of the quote unquote um, good good white people to just go about our lives being good not non-racist white people um because the systems are embedded deeply enough in our society and our culture that they that they function pretty much on their own and so that we need to be about disrupting them and yeah that that takes a certain kind of uh openness in the way that we scrutinize things the way we look at ourselves the way we look at our relationship to the world as it is, the way we look at how we all got to this moment. Yeah, and we need to be willing to rethink things and, and do, do things differently, more to the point. Mm -hmm. Well, John, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That felt <laughs> rambly. But, um, well, it was a big rambly conversation. It's a little <laughs> bit challenging to take three, you know, <laughs> I don't know. S multiple series, <laughs> right, 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 um, right. So I was, I was mean. also kind of trying to figure out how to. Um, but no, I think it was. Um, it's it's yeah. really an incredible body of work, and it's really, and I appreciate how you put yourself into it. Um, mm. And and I think that's also the conversation we had here. So thank you. Mm. Well, thank you, thank you. As 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 as. They say, as some people have said to me, "Son, I hope there's something there you can use." <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. Well, I, again, I'm. It was it was fun, and if that's the right word, but I really enjoyed it, and yeah. I, I'm a fan, and I of what you do, and I'm really deeply honored to have been asked to do this. Uh -huh. Um. So, standing by, let me know if there's anything that that you need. Yeah, we will. We'll let you know what's happening of, with this, and um. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just glad to have you as a comrade out there. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Take have care. Have a great weekend, Krista. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. See ya. Bye.